Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Rick Broering, Paul Fritschner with you. And Rick, uh, we have a lot to talk about here, even though there's just one game in between the last time we recorded and today. Xavier unranked in the AP poll, 48th in Ken Palm. That's down 11 spots from last Monday. In the net, they're down uh, 11 spots as well. They're down to 36th. Bracket Matrix, they've dropped two seed lines from the seven to the nine. And Bart Torvik, they have a 75% chance to make the tournament. And that's still good, but that's down like 23%. They were about 98% last Monday at this time. The metrics are quickly, as you said, shifting out of Xavier's favor. And now this week you have a St. John's team at Corniseca where not only Xavier, but seems like everybody in the Big East has trouble in that little bandbox of an arena. And then you have Georgetown at home, which I know Georgetown is a historically bad team in the Big East. They're around 200 in Ken Palm. I mean, this Georgetown team is, again, they are historically bad, but everybody listening knows that. You just flat out cannot lose to Georgetown on Saturday. This is, this is danger zone, though, for the Musketeers because it's down to a point where it's not so much must-win games as it is can't-lose games, and, and you can't lose to Georgetown at home on Saturday. That goes without saying. But to start off what happened on Saturday, Rick, I know you weren't there. You had NKU, but you've heard everything. You were watching the game. Uh, I was there, and it was it was a sad sight, to be quite honest. And anybody that's listening that was there would probably agree with that. I've been going to Xavier games for a long time, and there are people listening that have been going to Xavier games a whole lot longer than I have. And I've never seen the building as down. I've never heard the building as pessimistic as they were on Saturday afternoon. It was it was a sad sight. It was a bad sight, quite honestly, at some points in the game. Uh, just the fans, the 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 players on the court, just everything about it just seemed very downtrodden and. Honestly, by the end, pretty miserable. Uh, th there was just not a lot of positivity going around in the building, and nor really should there be at that point. I'm, I'm not saying that it was all sunshine and roses. It was a double-digit loss to Seton Hall. Fourth straight year that Seton Hall was won by double digits at Centos. Only team that Travis Steele hasn't beaten at home is still Seton Hall. A and, Rick, it was just – it was a, about as bad of a game as you could have uh, could have really – seen Xavier play and coming off a triple overtime game against Providence. Our biggest question from the live podcast after that game on Wednesday night was how is Xavier going to respond? And they did not respond well. Yeah. And I think you can look at that and reasonably say, well, okay, they played a triple overtime game. It's not entirely shocking that they were a little worn down or they didn't have quite the same energy. And that's fair, I guess, but no one's willing to listen to that right now, given the situation that the Xavier team was in. It felt like their backs are against the wall. You just need to see them come out and, and scrap and claw their way and fight and do anything they can to win that Seton Hall game to stop the slide. And they weren't able to do anything, it seemed like, against Seton Hall. I mean, the first half was okay, I guess, initially. Uh, but that little stretch towards the end of the first half where Seton Hall pulled out to what was an eight point lead. Yeah. 39, 31 at halftime. Uh, and then the second half, it was just Xavier's never able to make any type of run. And it was a lot of the same problems we've seen over the last year. Plus, I think the biggest one that was frustrating for fans to watch was the lack of intensity on defense. The fact that 
they keep having all these breakdowns, the miscommunications, the wide open shots, the Zach Fremantle ending up guarding the best scorer on the other team too often and, and mismatches, all those types of situations that we've seen play out time and time again that have hurt Xavier were that way in the second half. And in addition, it looked like this team kind of quit. And maybe that's an unfair way to put it, but they didn't have any fight left in them at the end. They didn't have a counter punch when they started to fall behind and things started to look bad and the arena started raining down booze on them and uh, the student section started chanting fire steel and all those things. There just wasn't anything left for this team. And I think that's what was really hard to watch about it is just the lack of counter punch there in the second half and the inability to lock in focus use this adversity and these struggles and and all the uh the hate coming from your own fan base to fuel a a more resilient group and a, it's us against the world type mentality that just never came for the team they seemed to kind of will you could sense the students frustration I and mean, this is a class that hasn't seen this team go to the ncaa tournament and then that that the just the whole scene of of every of everything really it just was it was ugly. It was ugly. Yeah, it was ugly. It was there's ugly. No, there's no other way to put it. I mean, it, it's 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 a not a good situation right now. And I know a lot of Xavier fans are proud of what they're doing at the Centos Center. It's not for me to tell you what to do. I think a lot of these fans want permission to do this stuff. They get mad when you call them out on it. No one's telling you you can't do anything. I don't know why you feel the need to get permission from someone like me to act like a fool in public. If that's what you want to do, if that's your thing, then just own it. Like, don't come back to us and say, well, can't you see where the fans are coming from? Why aren't we allowed to boot? It's like, but you're allowed to do whatever you want. And then we're allowed to comment on you and think you're an ass clown. That's how the world works. You know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the fans because people just get upset and butthurt about it when you call them out on that. But I will just say it is kind of sad. And uh, I'm a little shocked to see Xavier and the Centa Center and what used to be an incredible place to go watch games, what used to be a fan base known for being like kind of the golden standard in Cincinnati and the one fan base that was actually a good supportive fan base crumble like this. I mean, to have columns written in your local paper and to have color analysts on TV talking about how you've become known for being a rough place on your own and eating your own a little bit here in the season it's just shocking from someone who's watched this program for a while. Yeah. Paul Daughtery actually just wrote an article. I saw a few minutes ago before we started recording this and it was basically that same exact point. And you know, there were some consistencies in Cincinnati sports and Xavier fans turning on their own was not one of them. And that was the point that he made. And I know everybody listening, I know everybody's opinion on him, but I'm just saying that, that's a name in Cincinnati media that now is starting to pick up on, on things like that. And a name who's completely it, detached and doesn't pay attention to anything. So once he knows yeah. about it, you know, everyone's talking about it. Cause like yeah. if, if Doherty's figured it out, then it's, it's gotten around to everybody. He's the last to know anything that goes on in sports in this town. Yeah. I, I mean, I had somebody tweet on at me after the game and said, uh, I boo on the effort put forth. Did I boo Fremantle going in for Edwards? Absolutely, but not Fremantle. It was because Nunji should have been subbed out. I mean, that's the no, stupidest shit I've ever heard in my life. Like you can't, no, you can't separate that. <laughs> no, no, because he was playing bad, but because he needed a rest. So I booed Steele. Like, do you think that the people on the court or involved with the program can separate all of those factors into the actual sound that's coming out of your mouth? It's just contributing to the negativity that's in the room. And if that's how you're going to take it out, then that's how you're going to take it out. 
But if you're going to have to give all of these justifications for why you're doing what you're doing, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. No, they, they, they lost their, their fallback plan on we're booing the coach, not the players, when they booed Zach Fremantle coming back into the game. You can say you're booing the decision, but you're booing one individual player coming back into the game. It's messed up. I mean, do, do whatever you want, but from anyone else watching this from an outside perspective, it's messed up. Yeah. So to get back to one of your points from a minute ago, the offense has certainly struggled to score at times during this drought, but it has not dropped off nearly as much as the defense has, Rick. On February 1st, Xavier was 33rd uh, offensively on Ken Palm. Now they're 46th, but they were 29th defensively. Now they're 62nd. I mean, that is an incredible drop in just the, just the month of February alone. That has not taken the entire season to get to that point. That's just in the last 27 days that they have gotten to that point. And the defense has completely let them down. Travis really, really hammered that home. And if you haven't listened to Travis's press conference on uh, from Saturday, I, I thought it was one of the more fiery or impassioned press conferences that he had, had given recently. And, and he talked about that. He was saying, hey, look, defensively, this is where we have just had all of our issues lately. This is where we've broken down. We're not getting back in transition. We're not communicating. And, and you're playing Big East teams that you've played for years and are running the same thing that you've run over and over and over. We talk about why Xavier might have more success in the NCAA tournament against non-conference teams that don't know what their offense is going to do. It, the reverse of that is Xavier knows exactly what Seton Hall is going to do offensively. And you still have guys going for career nights every single night, just like Travis said. And, and that just flat out cannot happen. It's tough to put a figure on that entirely because on one hand, you do see some patterns of like, okay, is it this defensive system? Is it this way of teaching defense or what they're emphasizing on a day in day out basis in practice? Because I'm a big believer in for the most part, it doesn't really matter what system you play as long as your players can play within that system. Meaning as long as your personnel is fit to, to make your system work, almost anything can work at the college basketball level. You see all different types of teams having success with all different styles of play. Some of them I, I like more, so, some of them I dislike more, but I've seen teams win with all different styles. So I don't want to say like, oh, it's the pack line. You can't play pack line in 2022. That's not going to work. I don't think that's true. I do think there is clearly some type of issue with either a the personnel they've been bringing in in and fitting it to the pack line defense or b what they're emphasizing each day in practice with how they're going to play defense and what is important because for whatever reason and Travis points this out I mean he makes no bones about it they consistently just can't guard the ball and Xavier plays about as opposite of a defense as you can play from NKU, which is the other team that I'm watching nonstop and breaking down the film constantly. NKU plays a matchup zone, the same type of defense that Kevin Willard plays at Seton Hall. You see Cronin used to play it the same way. That's the style of defense that NKU plays. And earlier in the year had the same issue that Xavier's having in the pack line defense. They just couldn't guard the ball. You can't be a good defensive team if you can't guard the ball one-on-one, -on -one, regardless of what your system is. Now, how you get better at that and why that is consistently an issue for Xavier, that's out of my pay grade. I really don't know the answer to it because I've been at practices. I've seen what they do. It makes a lot of sense to me. It looks similar to what, what I see other teams doing in their practices. And yet, here we are again. 
third straight year we're saying the same things about this team and the way they play defense and their issues. But uh, the other thing about it is not just not being able to guard the ball, but the lack of communication at times when things get tough and the lack of focus to where they just have these mental breakdowns or Zach Fremantle isn't able to remember to sprint back each time when they play St. John's in transition, or it's just things like that, where it's little mental errors or the inability to constantly do what you're supposed to do on every single possession this team seems to be bothered by those issues more than most teams that I watch. And there's a lack of physicality too. How many times on Saturday did we see not just one, but several different Xavier players get straight up back down right to the low block and scored on with ease. That's a great point. And that might actually be the more important point than what I just brought up because you can make up for mistakes when you just play really freaking hard and tough. And this team has none of that. Right. So like they have to, they have no wiggle room. They've got to be perfect in their execution because they don't have enforcers. They don't have a shot. They don't have guys who are just going to be tough and fly around the ball. And then they don't have dominant rebounders. You're right. They lack toughness. They lack an edge. And, you know, I wouldn't have said this for most of the season, but in the last three out of four games, I would say it seems like at times they lack a little bit of effort. Yeah. That the Providence game, you go out and you score 90 plus points and it's triple overtime. Everything takes everything out of you and you put so much effort in and it just seemed like, okay, maybe this is maybe this is going to be the turning point. But then it wasn't. And it, it just on Saturday, they looked deflated. They looked tired. They were getting back down. They were getting beaten transition in the second half. In the second half, Rick, I, I don't have the stat in front of me for how many times Xavier scored coming out of the half, but Xavier was scoring fairly consistently coming out of the halftime break. But Seton Hall scored on seven straight possessions. If you're not getting a stop, then going on a run or scoring consistently, it, it doesn't matter. It just... It doesn't matter if Seton Hall is going to come down and score seven times in a row and just knocking threes in your face and ones. It was everything. They were scoring in the post. They were scoring from outside. Xavier couldn't do a thing to stop them when they needed stops in the second half. And then eventually when Seton Hall started at least coming back to the, you know, regressing to the mean, Xavier started turning the ball over. At one point when Xavier was trying to make a run, they turned the ball over on three straight possessions. And Sintas was dying, dying to get into this game. There was a point where Xavier was down, I think, 12. And they went on a 4-0 run. A four, they literally just scored two baskets in a row. And the entire crowd came to its feet. They were down eight. And the whole crowd was on its feet. They didn't get a stop, and the game was over from there. At like... You, you just could sense it was so there were so many times where if they could have just strong, I think they finished the game with two kills, which again, so that's all you need back. to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they just could not get a stop to save their lives. That stretch right after the six minute mark, they'd cut it down to single digits. Again, they got it back down to nine. There was a little bit of momentum. Freeman old hit that three and then Kunkel and Scruggs both scored back to back. And I was like, okay, maybe they've got one last ditch effort in them here with six minutes to go. And then all of the turnovers that you talked about started happening. It's like they turned the ball over four times in the next three minutes and they didn't score for three minutes and Seton Hall goes on a 10-0 run and now the game's over. It's a 19-point game. They turned the ball over twice inbounding. They had two inbounding. They had two inbound turnovers. Oh, one of them, they just threw out of bounds, and the other one got thrown to half court, and it just led to a run out, uh, a layup. 
Yeah. Uh, Colby Jones, I think was the, the trigger man on both of those. And he ended up with, uh, I believe it was five turnovers in this game or four turnovers in this game. Yeah. He ends up with five turnovers, four assists, five turnovers. It's like, it's tough because he was really the bright spot for Xavier in this game. He goes for a double, double, he had 20 points, 10 rebounds. He was eight of 10 from the field. Some of those moves he was making the drives and the finishes, like this is the Colby Jones that they need on the offensive end for the most part. But at the same time, even hit, it was, it felt very similar to what Paul Scruggs has done a lot this year, where he made the plays to give you a chance. And he was the only guy that was giving you that type of spark on the offensive end. And yet at the same time, you get into crunch time, you've got a little bit of a window left to make a comeback and you turn the ball over a bunch of times like that. It wasn't just Colby. There were some other guys turning it over too in that stretch, but it's like he can't have four turnovers in the second half in a game like that, where he's playing really well, he can't finish the game with five turnovers. So I, that's just the thing that this team has, has been battling all year too. It's like their, their best players, the guys who are even playing well, can't seem to get all the way right. It's always just something with this team this year. And uh, that was the, the turnover thing in the second half was just bizarre. Cause that hasn't really been much of an issue for this Xavier team this year. They had like turnovers as not been a problem consistently for them a little bit earlier in the year, but that had been pretty much smoothed out. And uh, then you see it crop up again in the second half of this one, when they, they have a, a last ditch chance to make a comeback. Yeah. And it wasn't just turnovers. It was, it was careless turnovers. It was yeah. just head scratching plays that make you think to yourself, what are we doing here? And Is this group checked and, out. Yeah. And, and now you know, Travis says in the press conference after the game that there's plenty of time left, but that it's go time. And and look, like you get Nate Johnson back, maybe, who knows, maybe you get him back, but there's still that opportunity there to add one of the best shooters in the country right back into your roster and maybe get things clicking again. And depending on how things break in, in the Big East tournament, you win a game or two and, and things could go your way. But like, you're again down to this this point where you're coming off a 16 point loss to Seton Hall, and you're going to have to turn around and play St. John's, who always gives you trouble, and who oh by the way blew you out at home just a few weeks ago. So you know 86 to 73 at Centos. Now you got to go back to Carnesecca, and then you have Georgetown, who's athletic but one of the worst. May, might be the worst power conference team in the country. Um, I, I haven't checked the latest, you know, the update on it, whether they still are, they've been one of the worst. So all of that combined, now you're looking at a situation where there's at least still an opportunity for this team to, to stay as a, as an eight or nine seed, if they could go one and one, two and oh, uh, and maybe win that, that Wednesday game to get to Thursday. But is this group still in it? Is, has this group checked out? I, I, I guess that's the biggest question now. Yeah, I mean, the answer coming out of the Seton Hall game would seem to be it's starting to look that way. And I think you go, it's not just the Seton Hall game. You go back to three of the last four. So not including the Providence game that went to triple overtime where I thought they gave a pretty good effort against a good team in their own gym. Travis Steele said after the game, uh, against Seton Hall that he still thought the defense against Providence was not good at all and, and not satisfactory. He felt like his team was a letdown on that end of the floor. And that's why they lost that game too. So that's fair. I mean, that's, you know, he, he certainly knows better than we do. And I would agree with him that they probably weren't great defensively in that game, but I thought that the toughness, the fight, the resolve, they were trying. You know, there was no doubt those guys were trying to win that Providence game. They were all 
hands on deck. Everyone was locked in all that type of stuff. But the two games before that, this Seton Hall game after it, I think you can make the argument that it looked at times like guys had lost focus or guys had checked out. And I don't take saying that lightly because I think that's an unfair thing to say about college athletes for the most part. But it's a hard argument to make otherwise right now when you see the way they've been playing and you talk about the defensive miscues, the turnovers late in this game, and the ability to just get ran out of your own gym. That's not who the Xavier program is. That's not who the Xavier team has been. To lose at the Cinta Center by 16, that's, it's a bad look. It just is. So do you have a fix, Rick? Is there something <laughs> that like, is there something that you're looking at in your head that that's a maybe besides the effort, something tactical, something tangible that's, you know, offensively, defensively that you're looking at and saying they have to do this or something to drastically turn it around that they were doing well before or let's make it very sticks out. Let's make it very clear. If I did, I'd be making six figures and sitting on a bench somewhere (laughs) and not doing this podcast with you. Uh, uh, Here's the problem with that, Paul. We've talked about some things throughout the years of, you know, not that I'm a, a basketball expert and, and no more the coach step, but I've thrown out different things that, hey, maybe I would try this or maybe you'd want to cut back on these things, what have you. It's too late for any of that right now. Like they're not going to implement something new now. There's not going to be a tweak to the lineup right now that's going to make the difference for this team. They've got two games left, maybe one more at the Big East tournament, and then we'll see from there. But like, it's too late to make these changes or find a, a tweak that's going to fix this team. It has to come from within. Like what the stuff they're running, the guys they're playing, that's all they got at this point. So it's going to have to be an execution, a toughness, playing with a little more resolve type thing. It's not going to come from, oh, yeah, we went to a matchup zone or we, we uh, started playing a one three one and that changed the season around. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a gimmick zone or something is the answer. <laughs> but I just don't think that's going to be the case based on what we've seen from this team the last few games. And if it is the case, if it is a new defensive style or whatever, it's going to have to come as a result of these guys doing all those other things, playing with crazy energy, fighting like, you know, that their lives depend on it essentially, or their at least their basketball careers depend on it. Because for most of these guys, this is it. Like there, there isn't a, a huge future for a lot of these guys in terms of professional aspirations. And, you know, the Nate Johnson situation is a weird one because we've been told he's been working out. Adam Baum and I have seen him work out. He looks pretty good in those workouts. So when Travis Steele says on a post-game press conference, we think he could be back sooner than later. I I, I agree with that. That seems to be the case. I don't think he's lying about that. I don't think that's just like a coach speak gamesmanship thing to throw the other team off the set and make them worry that Nate might be back. I do think Nate could be back and that might make a difference for this team, but they also were, were sliding a little bit with Nate too in Big East play. So I don't think any one thing is going to be the answer. And I definitely don't think it's as much a tactical decision or uh, got to play different guys. Cause, cause look in this Seton hall game, I think we saw and likely because they were a little bit worried about some tired legs following the Providence matchup. They played some other guys early. Cesar Edwards got some more minutes in this one. Ben Stanley played more minutes in this one. What'd you see from those guys? Did you see a bit? Did you see a change? Did you see a team that looked like they were trending the right direction with them in there? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what Cesar gets the ball. The shot's going up. Yeah, he's, he's I mean, shucking, that's for sure. He's jacking, right? And and Ben Stanley, I mean, he scored when he came in, but... That was a nice same, move, a nice move and shot. Aside yeah, from that, though, it, I thought he struggled. 
Yeah, and and that's I think everybody wants the new blood. Everybody wants to see a new face. Everybody wants to see a fresh change. And I and I understand that. Look, I'm not taking away from the coaching staff wanting to do something different, put new guys in there, give Cesar a chance, give Ben Stanley a chance. We haven't seen Deontay Miles in what feels like forever, and I'm not advocating for him to get more minutes. I'm just saying that's a face we haven't seen in a very long time. But at the same time, I'm not sure that Cesar Edwards and Ben Stanley are the answer to turning this all around when, you know, Cesar gave you whatever that was and, and what I forget which game that was. They're all blending together that he scored those eight points in nine minutes or whatever it was on the road a few games ago. Was that the uh, second half of the Seton Hall game or was it UConn yeah, maybe? I think, I think it was, I think it was Seton Hall. I think it was, I think it was at the Prudential center, but either way, it, you know, you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle maybe with those guys. And the other thing too is getting nine players or whatever it was into the rotation against Seton Hall is big when you're coming off a loss like that in triple overtime. Jack Nungie looked tired. I mean, I feel for Jack Nungie because he looks straight up just exhausted. I mean, he he looks he looks like he has left it all out on the court already. And now in you know, nine hours, the calendar is going to flip to March and it's the most important month of the year. But boy, he just looks depleted. And I'm not saying he doesn't have anything left in the tank, but he just it just looks like he's worn down. And that is a situation you wonder if that's been handled the right way, because earlier in the season, it was a lot of clamoring for why isn't Jack Nungy playing more minutes? He's clearly the best option at center. Why is Deontay Miles still starting? All of those things. We're hearing that from the fan base constantly. I saw the message word constantly. Later in the year, they now are playing him over 30 minutes a game. They're not taking him out as much. And we're seeing what we're seeing. He looks absolutely gassed. And he goes from being one of your best players early in games. And certainly a few weeks ago, he looked even fresher at those beginning of those games. But even right now, he starts off the games pretty well, usually. And as the game goes on, he just kind of disappears. And he clearly starts laboring and he's moving slower and he's during timeouts, he's bent over and, and, and breathing hard. So you do wonder if whether it was Deontay miles or whether you needed to find more minutes for Cesar Edwards earlier on so that he had more of a flow and was more ready to help you right now. It does seem like there needs to be some type of backup for Jack Nungy. And I, I mean, maybe the answer was should just be playing Zach Fremantle more at the five when Jack goes out and not playing them together as much. I don't know. But it does seem like it is. It's just too much to ask Jack Nungy to play thirty plus minutes at the five because he goes from being really effective to not really effective at all at the end of games. Yeah, and he had six points against Seton Hall, eleven each in Providence in the in the Providence and Connecticut games, and that was coming off three straight games where he scored twenty two each. So it's he's gone twenty two, twenty two, twenty two, eleven, eleven, six. And he played 44 minutes against Providence. So maybe that had something to do with it too, when you only get two days in between, but he he just, he just looked tired. And when he is somebody that has quite honestly, everybody wants to say, saved the season. Jack has retroactively saved the season up to this point with his play in some of these games where he's been the bright spot for the Musketeers. And then, now, at the end of the season, it, it, it's starting to to just kind of wear on him a little bit. And maybe a, a few days off now going into 
a very fast paced game on when this is not, this is not a game where you're playing against Villanova and a methodical type offense. This is a get up and down the court and get your oxygen tank kind of game on Wednesday night. And it's coming off triple overtime and Seton hall where he scored six points. So I, I, I have to feel for Jack in that perspective with the load he's kind of had to bear uh, through most of this season. And, And that's why I, tend to believe that the coaching staff really feels like they don't have enough behind him to be effective. Like they don't have a good answer to be the backup center right now because they clearly knew earlier in the season that this was a possibility. I mean, the way they were playing him and trying to limit his minutes, it was obvious that they knew that he wasn't really ready to play 40 minutes a game. And they were probably worried about his knees holding up and things like that. So uh, the fact that they went through the season and weren't able to find a more consistent backup center, it probably tells you what you need to know about what they had on the bench. Now, I think Cesar Edwards has a chance to be really good going forward, and I think he's shown already in the brief minutes that he's gotten that he has some ability. I don't know if it's helping them win a lot of games right now because I think there's still going to be some some mishaps on the defensive end, and obviously he has the ability to shoot you out of games with uh, the way he's putting up these shots so quickly. I mean, it's just one for five in, in that, that last game. So I, I don't know what the answer there is at center. I don't think there is a good one is what I'm trying to say because I think if they felt they had a true backup, you would have seen that guy playing a lot more minutes throughout the season. So, yeah. I- yep. And Zach Fremantle on the flip side of that Fremantle now has scored in double figures in five straight games. Granted it's 12, 10, 11, 15 and 11. Uh, but the other thing too, Rick is coming into that game on Saturday, Zach had made five total threes on the season and he's in that game at one point leading your team in three point attempts ends up making three of them. Uh, but you can kind of hear the audible groan from Sintas every time he steps into a three, makes three out of five. But what's your take on the shot selection and the volume of shots, especially from three for Zach? Well, I, I told you during the, yeah. the game against against uh, Seton Hall, I was, I was really I was, just trying to drag. I was really just trying to drag this take out of you. I, I think there's there's a world in which I would have just let Zach shoot every single time, just shoot a wide open three every single play, because I think he's in this weird world right now where he knows and he's been told, don't settle for bad threes, look to get the ball inside, look to attack more, do what you're good at, get back to your bread and butter, because he had been struggling so much shooting and he was taking so many bad threes. And now he's caught in between a lot. He's indecisive. He doesn't, he's sometimes taking a wide open three other times he's not. And then when he does, he doesn't step into it with confidence. Like I would have just, I think there's, if, if you got to a point where you're really struggling, I think I'd just tell Zach, we're riding you the rest of the game. We're just going to throw it. Every time you come wide open, you fire that thing up with hundred percent confidence and just see if you can get some type of confidence and momentum going for Zach at all with his shot. And lo and behold, he ended up three for five because they were leaving him wide open. But it kind of goes into a conversation about the offense. I'm saying that half tongue in cheek, by the way. Don't get all mad about me saying Zach Fremont should be shooting threes as the only offense. I'm mostly joking, <laughs> although there is part of me in my head where I'm like, the way they were putting Ike Obiagu on him and just not guarding him from out there makes me think it might have been the best offense. Like, if you watch Division One college basketball players just go out and shoot wide open threes in a shoot around, they're pretty good. Even if they're not high percentage shooters, they're pretty good just taking practice wide open threes. Those were the type of looks Zach was going to get in that game with the way they were defending him. So there's part of me that thinks it's not a bad strategy. Again, most of that's tongue in cheek. I don't really think that's what Xavier should have done. But it does bring up 
a point uh, about the offense, I, I hear a lot from the fans like they're not running anything or their offense is so predictable. So they're not running any set plays, all this types of stuff. With all due respect, a lot of you don't know what you're watching when you're saying that. Like you, you really just don't know what you're watching at all if you think this team isn't running any sets. Secondly, I will agree that there are a lot of points where it feels like this team is just passing the ball back and forth along the perimeter, looking for a lane or looking for something to do, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. And that is where the they're not running anything argument comes from. But here's the issue with that. You've got a seven-foot-two shot blocker just camping out in the paint, not guarding Zach Fremantle at all in this game. You've got whoever's guarding Dwan Odom, not guarding him at all in this game. You've got whoever's guarding Colby Jones, not worried at all if he's going to shoot a three and playing off of him and helping off of him as much as they want in this game. There's probably a few other, basically anyone that wasn't named Adam Kunkel and maybe Paul Scruggs, they're not guarding beyond the perimeter. So when you run a little dribble handoff or you run an action off the ball or you're trying to run this elaborate set play, guess what? They're just not worrying about it. They don't have to chase you around these screens. They don't have to guard these actions diligently. They don't have to get themselves overextended or chasing you because they're not worried about your inability to shoot the ball. Travis said after the game that shooting wasn't the issue and people complaining about shooting are are misguided. I couldn't disagree more. In this game, I get his point because they hit seven threes and it still wasn't enough to win, all of that stuff. And he's right. It wasn't just about their lack of three-point shooting. That wasn't the only issue here. But overall, for his team, the fact that no team respects his team's ability to shoot, the fact that they're not guarding any of their actions as a result, and the fact that consistently this team goes through these futile stretches of offense where they can't score for three, four, five, six, seven, eight minutes sometimes. That is the biggest problem with this team in my mind, without question. I don't think there's any doubt that on on the large scale, over the course of the last two seasons, the biggest problem is the consistent inability to shoot from the outside and the consistent problem with going through futile stretches where the other team just makes a big run and wins the game. And I'm not trying to act like other teams don't go on runs or don't give up runs too, because that it happens all the time in the sport. We see runs. But for this Xavier team, it seems like it is constant and it's constantly the reason they lose the game because it's not like they just play poorly on defense and give up a, a big scoring stretch to the other team. It's those five or more minutes of offense where they just don't score at all. Or they turn the ball over four times in three minutes. Those are the stretches that really kill this team in my opinion. And it's not a very aesthetically pleasing offense and, and the shot selection, everything else that's gotten brought up a lot on the board, especially people citing why they're not going to renew their season tickets. But it's just it's just become it's just become this grinded out tough style where it always seems so laborious to try and score, even if it's an easy two. It just seems like it's so hard for them to try and put the ball in the basket. Yeah. And that just goes back to the lack of shooting. Right. I mean, it gets hard to get the ball inside and get it to a decent spot when there's help defenders in every gap and people are packed in and they're not guarding two or three different guys on the floor, basically to not worry about them shooting that. I mean, that's what it all comes back to in a lot of ways. So I'm not saying it's the only problem. There are more, but if you could fix one thing about this team by snapping your fingers immediately and and giving yourself the best chance to get back on track, it is 100% without a doubt, make some shots with some level of consistency in my opinion. Yeah. And now you got to turn your attention, like we talked about a little bit, to St. John's in Georgetown. And I I tweeted out a picture of the bracket. If you're listening and you're going to go to Madison Square Garden, or even if you're just planning your your schedule for next Wednesday, 
the winner of St. John's and Xavier will be the seven seed in the Big East tournament. If Xavier loses, they'll be the eight seed. They can't finish higher than seven, can't finish lower than eight. If Xavier wins, they're the seven. If they lose, they're the they're in the the eight nine game. That's as simple as it can get. There are other things with the bracket, Creighton, I think UConn, Seton Hall, like some things that for Thursday will shake could shake out a little differently from those screenshots that I put on there. But as far as Wednesday goes, that left side that I tweeted out was if they beat St. John's, the right side was if they lose to St. John's. It's as simple as that. And you get down to a point where there are a lot of fans that are on the message board, on Twitter, on Facebook, listening to this podcast right now that are doubting Xavier's ability to beat Georgetown on Saturday afternoon. And I have recently, just because I have, for whatever reason, watched a lot of Georgetown. They are really bad. I mean, I watched their Georgetown, the, I watched the DePaul game the other day. They had a million chances to win that game against DePaul at home. Now, granted, there's not much of a home court advantage because there's like 10 people in the stands. And frankly, as somebody that grew up in Northern Virginia and went to Georgetown games, like when I was a kid, like it, it was tough to see that bad of a crowd at a game like that. I saw the paper bags were out. Some people had the old paper oh, bags like they were a Bengals was, fan back in the 90s. It was it was awful. I I, I genuinely I, I genuinely as bad as I could feel for that program. I, I genuinely did feel bad because it's just it. Now, granted, they're playing in Capital One Arena. It's not like they're playing in a tiny little cozy arena. You know, they're, they're having to fill up a, a twenty or thirty thousand seat arena, but there was maybe a thousand people there. I don't know what they announced attendance wise. All of this is to say that if you lose on Saturday at home to Georgetown, there's, there's no world in me that, that can picture what that scene would be like for as bad as what happened on Saturday and as ugly as that scene was on Saturday. And I have no real, I, I know people are skeptical and I know there's a lot of frustration. Georgetown is exceptionally bad. They are really bad. And for Xavier to even entertain the thought of losing at home against this Georgetown team on Saturday, I mean, that would be a new low and that would be a depth to this program that, that would be pretty bad. Yeah. I know fans love to make it out to be like DePaul and Georgetown are the same or St. John's and Georgetown are the same this year. When Xavier lost those two home games to DePaul and St. John's, it's like, Oh, you're losing the dregs of the conference. Yeah. What, he's going to lose to Georgetown too. The, I can't explain to you the level of difference between like number 250 in Ken Palm and number 100. Everybody else in the Big East is like a top 100 type team this year, even DePaul and St. John's. They are talented teams. They are dangerous teams. Yes, they're not winning consistently. Yes, you should beat them in their own gym. I'm not arguing against any of that stuff, but they are legitimate, dangerous, high major teams. End of the, the conference for sure. Not a good high major team, but a legit high major team. They have capable. that level of ability. Capable. Yes, capable. Georgetown is none of that. They stand, they're a mid-major type program right now in terms of their talent level, in terms of their ability level. They really stink. But here's the problem. if From a fan's perspective, I would not want Xavier playing this game. I would want them to play anyone else in the conference other than Georgetown to finish off the season. Yes. I feel like that is the worst possible because all of a sudden, 
I don't know how you feel, but I think there's a very legit possibility that this team loses that game. The way things are going, I don't think it's about the opponent very much right now. I think it's way more about the Xavier team, where their yeah. heads are at, where everything's going. And with the CentOS Center, I'd also say the last place in the world I'd want to play a game right now if I was Xavier is the CentOS Center. I mean, it is a toxic, toxic environment. It's going to be senior day. You're going to be booing Paul Scruggs off the floor here. And if they lose that game, I, you're right. I cannot imagine what that scene is going to look like at the CentOS Center. It's going to be as ugly as any scene maybe in Xavier basketball history, at least anything that we know of. Yeah. And again, there really is no reason that Xavier should lose that game, except for the fact that they could beat themselves, right? Like I, the, you said it great. The problem if they lose on Saturday is not Georgetown. The problem would not be Georgetown beating Xavier. It would be Xavier beating themselves. And I don't think there is a lot of confidence right now in Xavier being able to beat anybody at, at the high major level. And there's, it's crazy that we've come to that point where on February 1st, this team was a four or five seed and could potentially, there was, there was a world in which on February 1st, you were looking at a, a two or three seed in the big East tournament. But if things really broke your way, if things really, really broke your way, you were looking at at least top four. You were up there with UConn, Villanova, and Providence. You weren't going to win the conference, but you were, you were a top four Big East team on February 1st. Number 21 in the country, whatever it was. It might have even been higher than that. And now all of a sudden, on February 28th, we are sitting here having a legitimate conversation, Rick, about this team losing on Wednesday, which if you're looking at the Big East tournament, maybe isn't the worst thing in the world because they would get Butler on Wednesday, Providence on Thursday, and then the winner of like Seton Hall or Marquette or Creighton or Marquette, whoever on, on Friday, if, if they could get, you know, all, I'm just saying if they got through all those games, what? You got a grin I'm, on your face. Just I'm, I'm just it. going out on a limb saying, I don't know that anyone's worried about Big East seating for Xavier. <laughs> Right no, now. I no, think that's like the no. last thought, but your point is, well, no, taken. no, but, but, but I'm, I'm saying like, it, you know, I'm just saying like, if you're right. looking, if you're looking at, you know, if you would rather play like Butler, Providence, Creighton or DePaul, Villanova, Yukon, like that, that's where winning right. or losing versus St. John's comes in. That's my point. I think everybody listening to this would rather go two and zero this week and ensure an NCAA tournament appearance, because that's what going to two and zero this week really means. Because I think if they go 2-0 this week, even if they lose to – that would be DePaul on Wednesday, you're still at least like an 11 seed. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. If we're looking at – I've got a lot of people asking me about like, okay, what is it now? You've been saying Xavier's going to get in this whole time, smart man. What, what is it going to be now that they just keep losing? And it's like, uh, okay, I, I agree with you. I think if you win St. John's and Georgetown, you are locked in. Guarantee your 19 wins at that point. You got all the metric stuff that we've been talking about, which by the way, I'll agree with everyone that it is not good anymore. No one is bringing up metrics as a defense for Xavier anymore. That is fair enough. I, I got it. Everyone has been on the other side and has been yelling at us. I remember specifically when they lost the back-to-back -back games to Marquette and Providence earlier this year, and people were like, here comes another late season collapse. It's the same thing over and over. And I'm like, relax you're acting crazy right now this is silly they're a lot they're still a lock for the tournament at this point they're actually got a you know in a position to get a top five seed in the tournament as we're talking about it at that time all of these things i'd like to apologize to those people and say kudos to you 
You foresaw this coming. I still think it's crazy to get upset about something like that at that time when things are going just fine. But you were right. It turned out just like you thought it would. It, it ended up being a disaster. They are tanking again at the end of the season, and they might actually miss the tournament. You are correct. So kudos to all those people who were being super negative back in uh, mid-January. You guys turned out to be the right ones. I, I hope you're happy now. But uh, I think we can agree with that, right? You beat St. John's. You beat Georgetown. You're in the tournament. You yeah. go one and one there. Now, now if you beat St. John's, Sorry, if you lose to St. John's and beat Georgetown, which is could easily be what happens this week, do you have to beat DePaul? Or sorry, that would be Butler. Do you have to beat Butler? I'm tending. To I would think want. Yes. I would. I would I, want to. I, well, obviously, you would want to beat Butler, but like to get in, I probably I think you might need it. I think you might need it at that point. There's enough people that are starting to drop Xavier out of their brackets entirely. And enough people that have Xavier right on that cut line, like last four in right now, and that's before either of these games are being played. That if you lose that George or that you lose that St. John's game, and the only win you get is over a lowly Georgetown team that absolutely stinks. I think if nothing else, just the eye test of what people are seeing from Xavier. And remember, a lot of people are caught up with football season, they're busy. Even the people that really pay attention to this stuff, it's like they're watching. But there is more focus all of a sudden, like when you get into mid-February and, and the beginning of March. It's just human nature. It's how this works. The only thing someone's seen from Xavier if they started watching in February is a win over UConn and six losses. So yeah. it's going to be real difficult if you're watching Xavier within the last month to, to pass them on the eye test to get an NCAA tournament. Yeah, and if you're looking at bracket matrix, the update yesterday was the first time that I had seen all season that they weren't a unanimous pick, that they weren't in every bracket. The February 27th, I don't know if they've updated it yet for today because today is when they get into the point where they're updating it every day. It's still, I just checked, it's still as of yesterday. But there were 106 brackets posted uh, yesterday. Savers in 104 of them, but it's the first time, I think all season, I can't go back into an archive of it, it's the first time that I have seen it, at least, and I check it all the time, that uh, Xavier hasn't been in every single bracket. And if you look at it, uh, they highlight your lowest seed, right? And and they highlight it in red. There, there are several uh, highlighted 12s, right? Like, they're starting to really, really trend down, and... and when I say starting to really trend down, they've been trending down with their play on the court. I mean, they're starting to trend down sharply and significantly in the bracket. And on Wednesday night, when you go to Carneseca and play St. John's, that St. John's game on Wednesday night, that's a, oh, okay. I stand corrected. I was going to say it's a, well, it's right. On, it's literally right on the cusp. It's a quad one game, but it's literally right on it. St. John's is 75th. St. John's is 75. So it's quad one game, but barely. If they win, it won't be. So, like, oof. I don't know, Rick. I don't know, man. This is yeah, it's I mean, danger I th- zone. I think that's where it's at. Like, one and one, uh, a loss to St. John's and a win over Georgetown isn't enough to get you in. And one and one the other way. If you beat St. John's but then lose at home to Georgetown – I think you're right back in the same spot of I wouldn't feel comfortable getting in necessarily just with that. 
I, I think if they lose to Georgetown, they're out. Uh, that's probably fair. I don't know exactly how people would view that, especially if you uh, add like a, a if, if St. John's remains a quad one win, you add another quad one road win. I don't know how that counterbalances a, a terrible loss to Georgetown. A quad four a quad home four. loss. It would seem it would seem to be enough to put them out. I would agree with you. Um, but then obviously you're worried about the Big East tournament at that point and what you do in well, the Big East tournament. Yeah, I, I think I think if you if you beat St. John's and then lose a quad four game at home to a horrendously awful Georgetown team. Well, that, I mean, immediately you're going to have to beat. Uh, I think you need DePaul. more than one win. Yeah, I think you need more than one win, maybe in the Big East tournament you, at that point. You would have to beat DePaul, and then you'd that would put you up against Villanova on Thursday night at seven o'clock. And well, if you beat Villanova, then you're in. You're <laughs> safe. Yeah, I mean that's that's not even a question. Yeah. But I, you know, I, it, for as positive and as upbeat as I have been checking this bracket all all year, I. I I, I guess maybe if, like you said, if you beat St. John's as a quad one game and then you lose at home, does that balance each other out? Or does the committee look at that and say, that's a quad four law? I don't know. I, I'm kind of leaning more towards you. I think if you lose that Georgetown game period, it means you only get to 18 wins and you're ending the season on this stretch of losing five out of your last six. And one of them being a quad four loss at home to this Georgetown team, which everyone looks at as like whatever Georgetown's ranking says next to their name on the net or the Ken Palm or whatever, everyone views them as like 150 spots worse than that. If it was even possible, you know what I mean? Like everyone knows yeah. the Georgetown team absolutely sucks to be playing at this level. So that is going to be a bad look. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're putting yourself in a position where I think you, it, it may be even just a win over DePaul in the first round of the Big East tournament wouldn't even be enough. So uh, it's kind of, I think, you know what you need if you're Xavier and that is you need two wins. You, yep. you need to win two games here at the end of the season to get in. Is there a way to back your way in through the Big East tournament? Sure. Uh, no one wants to see that. No one wants to see it this way, the way they're doing it right now. But it, I think these games really are important because if this team does miss the NCAA tournament again, if they do lose these last two and you end on a six-game losing streak and having lost eight of your last nine to close the season again, I shouldn't say again, that's never happened before, but if you collapse down the stretch again like this and miss the tournament, there are going to be some hard conversations. There just are. Like that's, That is what it is. Uh, I don't think we have to go any farther than that because no one knows what's going to happen. There aren't like a bunch of big conversations being had at the Centa Center right now. Like there, There's no board meetings or anything about the future of the program right now. You've got two games left. They're going to see what happens in these final two games, and then they're going to start talking and making decisions. But if you lose out the rest of the way and you miss the tournament again, those conversations are going to start being had. And look, I had people all over in my mentions on Twitter, everybody tweeting at me saying, are, are you ready to call it a bust? Are you ready to say that the season's imploded? Are you look, I'm not going to make any final judgment on this season until after I see what happens at Madison square garden and then potentially in the NCAA tournament. And it's silly to do anything otherwise to suggest anything otherwise when they haven't played quite literally their most important games and the Paul Fritschner stamp of approval must win games of the season in March. That hasn't happened yet. And when you get to that point and then the season is over and you say, okay, you lose two this week, you lose on Wednesday at Madison Square Garden, the season's over. Okay. All right. Then maybe you start to, to look at everything one way. You win two games this week. You win on Wednesday. 
you lose a close game against Villanova on Thursday, you end up as a 10 seed, and then maybe things shake out your way. We're ha- we are sitting here, Rick, in two weeks, three weeks, having an entirely different conversation. So let's let's at least, at the very least, we've come this far. Everybody listening to this, as frustrated as you may be, you've all made it this far. There are no wholesale changes being made to this program at this point. Everybody has suffered and endured to this point. So you know what? You might as well just let it go for two more weeks and see what happens. Be as positive as you can be about it because being negative isn't going to help anybody out. Be as positive as you can be about it. Show up on Saturday. Give Paul Scruggs a standing ovation and call it a day. I just like to say, I don't care how positive or negative any of you guys are. I just do think it's funny. Like Paul said that uh, you all want us to be as angry as you are. Like you're getting mad at us because we can't put ourselves in your headspace and get mad about your team. Like, yes, I know your team's imploding. I know this team, this season hasn't gone the way you wanted. I I'm not going to get mad about it. I don't like, we're, we're yeah. watching basketball. You know what I mean? I do find it fun. Like the people who are all worked up about be, being criticized for booing. It's like, I don't, I just can't understand people who go to these games to be pissed off. They're like, Xavier basketball isn't fun for me anymore. I just don't even want to go. Then don't go. Like, where going to a basketball game to be pissed off and boo is the equivalent of going to a comedy show to sit there with your arms folded and be like, bet you can't make me laugh, funny guy. You know, like, you don't go to enjoy those things that way. They're supposed to be entertaining. You go to have a few drinks, yell out of an official and uh, cheer, support your school, like have a good time. If it really makes you mad to go to these games, go find something else. Go find a passion. Go find a hobby. Do something else with your time because it's getting bizarre with some of you. I don't know what you want from us or what you like. You want to yell at me, that's fine. I'm a little bit of a troll sometimes. I can be a jerk on social media. You guys get mad at me. I can understand that. You guys getting mad at Adam Bomb or criticizing Adam Bomb because you're mad at your team. Like, what's wrong with you? That's one of the nicest, most genuine dudes that's never said a bad word to any of you. And you guys are all being assholes to him. Like, what are we doing here? Just settle down a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, it it is basketball. I get it. No one wants your team to be in a bad spot. But try to remember that it is entertainment. That you're you're supposed to go there and enjoy it. If it makes you that mad, I would suggest that you step away and maybe quit watching. Well, they're wearing the gold throwback jerseys on Wednesday at Carnesecca. I'll be there. I'll be the MC. We'll have some fun on Saturday afternoon, hopefully, and, and wrap this thing up well. Hopefully. <laughs> will you guys start bo- but we'll uh, booing Paul if things go poorly? Yes, enough? boo me. I got boo. If you're going to boo a Paul, don't boo Paul Scruggs. Boo me. There. Direct all your Paul boos to me. I'm willing to take one for the team. How about that? I will I will absolutely pay. So I will Venmo somebody $10 <laughs> if they can get a boo going uh, during one of Paul's stand-up bits. That would be absolutely fantastic. <laughs> oh man all right well uh thanks to everybody for listening rick and i'll be back again next monday for uh a biggies tournament preview and we'll see what we're talking about next monday uh where, where this team is at that point but rick you got anything else that's it all right thanks for listening everybody have a good week